0: Satisfaction. Why can't we get it, and who alone can give it? On Truth Encounter, we want the children to feel a part of the teaching, along with their parents. So, today, Dave begins our lesson on Can't Get No Satisfaction by asking the kids about last year's favorite Christmas presents. Okay, I want you to think hard. This is a little bit tough. What's your favorite gift that you got for Christmas? You can raise your hand, and we'll go around here a little bit. What was your favorite? Here we go. My watch. Your watch, okay? Radio. Radio, okay? Some toy armor. Toy armor. Nintendo. Walkie-talkies. Remote control car. Remote control car. All right. Nintendo. Man, alive, Nintendo's ahead by a million miles. Here we go candy in my stocking. All right. Man, that's a great one. All right. Anybody get a little brother or sister? Can all of you think of your favorite gift from last year? Raise your hand if you can think of your favorite gift or one or two favorite things that you remember that you got really stick out in your mind. Let me ask you this question. How many of you, before Christmas came last year, were just really, I mean, you were looking forward to Christmas Day? and you wanted to get that favorite thing? And how many of you can remember really, really being excited when you opened up the present and there was your favorite gift? Everybody remember that? Okay, and remember having such a good time playing with it on Christmas Day. Okay, Did anybody here have such a good time playing with what you wanted more than anything else last Christmas that your parents don't have to buy you any Christmas gifts this year Because you're completely satisfied with what you got last year. (laughs) You mean to tell me that you're not satisfied with the things you got last year? Nobody will say, Mom and Dad, just forget all about going shopping. I am completely satisfied playing with my gifts from last year. Why is that? Why is that? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Every adult, as well as every one of you kids, I want you to think about the fact why... In this world, whether we get a Nintendo, whether we get a radio, some of the moms and dads want to get cars, some of us want to go traveling to different places like Hawaii or maybe over to Europe or something. I want you to think this morning about the fact that whatever we do in this life, whatever we get in this life, whatever we do in this life, we're never, never completely satisfied. And there's a reason for that. Because we're not home yet going to talk about that today. Why we're not ever satisfied and we're going to answer with the idea that we're not finally home. Let me share with you one of the Christmases I had when I was about 10 years old. Every year in New Jersey we would have Christmas and we would often, you know, you don't usually have snow in New Jersey to be honest with you. A lot of New Jerseyites would like to tell you they have snow. It usually drizzles about that time of the year to be honest with you. You might get a little bit of sprinkle and even up in upstate New York, way up in Lake Placid, a lot of times you might not have snow at Christmas. And even in Vermont sometimes it can be really sparse and the ski centers go nuts. But it's usually cold and you have that feeling you know, of Christmas in the air and, and it's just an exciting time. But one Christmas when I was 10 years old, my brothers and sisters, my older brothers and sisters were down in Florida going to school, right north of Orlando. And we decided that instead of flying them all the way back from Orlando, that we would drive down from New Jersey three days down, not just to Orlando, but we would go to southern Florida. And we decided we'd have our whole Christmas there. And we are a very traditional family. Even if you're going to have Christmas in Florida, you can't open your gifts until you get there. So we crammed all of our gifts, all wrapped, in the car. I sat with a carom board banging me for three days and my parents wouldn't tell me what it, what it was. I mean, it was jammed in the side of the car and you couldn't hardly look out of the window because this big carom board was right there blocking your view. My parents would never tell me what it was. So we got down there and man alive, we went swimming in the ocean on Christmas day. We went crabbing in the canals. We sunned ourselves on the beach. But you know what? We had a yucky Christmas. In fact, we tried to laugh. We tried to have a good time. But after being down there for a week in this 80-degree weather, we all had a family powwow. And after all this effort and all of this agony of driving down, we all decided we would never come to Florida again for Christmas. Why? Because it wasn't home. It wasn't home. I want you to stop and think about this. You know, something that will really help you because it really helps me if you'll realize that no matter what you do this Christmas holiday, no matter whether you do it in New Jersey, whether you do it in Florida, whether you do it here, whether you have Amy Grant's Tennessee Christmas, I don't care what kind of Christmas you have, it's not going to completely satisfy you. In fact, nothing you do in this life is going to completely satisfy you. And that's the big idea I really want to get across to you today. Because if you'll understand that as long as you live on this planet, as long as you live on this life, no matter what you experience, your whole life is going to be a, a cycle of looking forward things, looking forward to going to school, looking forward to graduation, looking forward to get married, looking forward to traveling, looking forward to getting a job, looking forward to getting a raise, and every single thing that you get, there's still a hollow place. When you're quiet for just a little bit, And even sometimes while you're in the midst of trying to have a good time, there's a hollow place. And that depresses a lot of you, because there's this yearning in your heart. And the problem is that you just haven't faced the fact that the way life is on planet Earth is that it's full of pain at times. It's full of toil, because it's a journey. It's a pilgrimage. We're not home yet. If you turn your Bibles back to Genesis, we want to look at Genesis Chapter 46 through 47 today. We want to learn about a man that was over a hundred years of age. Man, this guy is old. And yet, he still doesn't think that he lived that long. Now that's, you know, that's kind of tough. I mean, he lives over a hundred and he says, but I'm still not as old as my dad. And where we're picking up the Joseph story is Joseph has now revealed himself to his brothers in Genesis chapter 46. And they've had a great family reunion. He's shipped a bunch of carts loaded with goods up into Canaan, and he's brought his whole family down to Egypt. He's brought old man Jacob and all of his brother's kids and all their wives, and they're all coming down to Egypt. And what we're going to do in our lesson today is we're going to learn about how the children of Israel ended up in Egypt for 400 years. We want to focus, first of all, on how Joseph brought his father Jacob into the presence of Pharaoh. We want to listen to what Jacob said. If we look at the end of chapter 46, you'll notice in verse 31, then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and I will speak to Pharaoh and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are living in the land of Canaan have come to me now in Egypt. The men are shepherds and they tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and their herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended cattle or livestock from our boyhood, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the land of of the region of Goshen for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Now as Texans, we can all understand what's going on here because sometimes Texans, especially maybe 80 years ago or 100 years ago, there was a strong feeling about taking care of cattle and not taking care of sheep. And evidently that goes back to the Egyptians because what Joseph is telling them is a cultural thing that the Egyptians like cowboys that take care of cattle. They don't like herdsmen that take care of goats and sheep. There's even been range wars in our part of the country over that very thing. Well, evidently, it goes way back here to ancient Egypt. And What Joseph is trying to do is to get his family to do the right cultural thing, and his family combined those two things. They took care of cows. They also took care of sheep. But what Joseph says is you stress that you take care of cattle. That's a smart thing. If you were coming to Texas, that would be a good thing to do about 80 years ago to just tell them, I take care of cattle, forget about the sheep. And that's what Joseph is doing. Is trying to very skillfully prepare his family. He goes before Pharaoh in the beginning of chapter 47 and gets Pharaoh all prepared. But the first thing we want to focus on this morning is Father Jacob coming in before this mighty Pharaoh. You got the scene? We've got a great king sitting on his throne. He's the ruler over the most powerful kingdom of his day. We've got ancient Jacob coming in before him, this rough-hewn pilgrim. He's kind of a, a nomad. If you, if you think of a modern-day Bedouin with his long robes and his, his coverings, that's the picture you want to have because the Bedouins really haven't changed their dress in about 4,000 years. Okay, now, Hopefully they've changed their individual dress, but you know what I'm talking about, okay? Father Jacob comes in before this mighty king Pharaoh. Look at verse 5. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to the land of Egypt, and it's before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land and let them live in Goshen. And if you know any among them who have special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father. This is verse 7. Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him before Pharaoh. Now what would I expect at this moment? If you were to come in before a king, what would I expect? Well, I would expect something like this. I would expect that this mighty, this older man would come in, would bow down before the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh would reach out, maybe a scepter. You know, you've got the Egyptian girls with their big palm things that are waving and fanning the Pharaoh. I would expect the Pharaoh to put his hand out on Father Jacob and say, live, son, I want to offer you my blessing as the king of Egypt because usually the lesser is blessed by the greater. At you these situations like that I've been with Dr. Criswell Dr. Criswell is kind of like having an audience with the Protestant Pope in a way and he's got these unbelievable blue eyes and it looks like he's floating on air and when you go into his presence he puts his hand on your head and he says son son so thrilled to see you so dramatic and everything and it's just awesome you know you just can feel the goosebumps coming in well that's the blessing And usually, the more older person, the more powerful, in this case, the more powerful person the king offers his blessing. But I want you to notice something in our text. Look carefully at our text. It says, And Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him before Pharaoh. And after Jacob blessed, did you see that? Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Do you get the implication that here you have this Bedouin, this wanderer, this guy that's lived in tents all of his life. He's before the most powerful ruler of the inhabited earth, a guy that has unbelievable wealth. And Jacob, this older patriarch, this godly son of Abraham, son of Isaac, blesses Pharaoh. You know why? Because he's the representative of God on planet earth. Jacob, in the Old Testament, at this particular point in history, was the chosen vehicle of the blessing of God. In fact, remember God made the promise in Genesis chapter 12. He told Abraham that you are going to bring a blessing, that those who bless you will be blessed, those that curse you will be cursed, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. And what Jacob is doing is he is carrying out the gift of that blessing. In fact, the children of Israel are bringing a blessing right at that moment as Joseph brings them food in the midst of a famine. You say, Dave, what's that have to do with me? I want you to learn as a child of God, if you've received Christ into your heart, one of the things I want you to get a hold of is that you never need to feel inferior. You never need to feel intimidated. You never need to feel that you're not as valuable as anyone else. No matter where you go, we see the same kind of implication in the life of Paul. The life of Paul can come before Herod. He can come before Agrippas. He can come before the Roman authorities. He can even come before Nero. And Paul, the man of God, is the one that gives the blessing. And that's the great privilege we have. You see, in the New Testament if you've become a child of God, if you've invited Christ into your heart, then you are the conveyor of the blessing. And whether you go before a king or a mighty business leader who, who, or whoever it might be, you can know that because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life that you can relax, you can be yourself, and you can give a blessing instead of just being all encumbered by just thinking about yourself. Young people, that's where confidence comes from. Knowing that the Holy Spirit's in my life, I know who I am. Adults, that's where it comes from. And Father Jacob, this older patriarch, in the presence of the most powerful leader of his day, he was the one that gave his blessing. Now look what Pharaoh asked him. Whenever you meet an old man, this might not be a good question to ask, but Pharaoh asked it. Look what it says. Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? Especially if you go before a queen, don't ask her that. But pharaoh evidently in egypt it was okay so he had and look how jacob responds to verse 9 jacob said to pharaoh the years of my and i want you to get the next word what's the next word the years of my pilgrimage that's the key word today the years of my got it pilgrimage are 130 how many would you would think you'd lived a long time if you lived to be 130 Look what Jacob says. I love Jacob. He's got a great personality. He says, my years have been few. And Jacob's personality is always a little bit on the cynical side. My years have been few and difficult. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. My fathers lived about, Abraham and Isaac lived about 30 more years. Than Jacob did. So he says, I didn't live as long as my father. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went from his presence. I want you to notice something. You say, Well, Dave, you made it sound like this guy is just a cynical old man. No, he really isn't a cynical old man, because it says that he blessed Pharaoh. How many of you have ever been with a cynical, negative person that brings a blessing to you? Huh? How many of you have ever been around a friend, or maybe your wife, your husband, or maybe one of your kids, and they're just negative, and they're always talking about, man, life is difficult, it's just hard, and man, how many of, you, how many of them bring a blessing to your life? Man, you just love to have a Christmas party, and have this person come, and right in the middle of the Christmas party, say, man, life is so hard. How many of you like that? None of us like that, right? And that's, it really looks like maybe Jacob's that kind of a guy, but he isn't. You see, Jacob was able to get a blessing because, number one, Jacob faced what we talked about with the little kids. Jacob nailed down human life is short and it's difficult. I want every one of you to repeat after me. Human life is short and it is... You know what I find? If I know that something is going to be a certain way and I face myself with that... It helps me. How about you? Now, I want to share something with you. Right now, the children in the room don't think life is short. It's an amazing thing. Man, it just goes by so quickly. You know, the truth about life, the neat thing about Jacob is he told us the truth. You know what? I don't care if you live to be 130, and Jacob's going to live to be 147. That's a long time. You know what? But his life was still short, and life is difficult. You know, that's really comforting to me today. You say, Dave, you've got to be kidding. I said, yeah, it really is. It's really comforting because it's the truth. Life is short and it's difficult. And that's the fact. And it's like a tremendous Jones with a good friend of mine When I was in my teenage years and Tremendous Jones, his basic philosophy of life was that he got up in the morning and he said, this is going to be a difficult day. It's going to be a horrible day. There's going to be all kinds of problems today. There's going to be all kinds of terrible, maybe even tragedy today. And he said, that's the way he approached the day. You say, why did they call him Tremendous Jones? Because he said, you know what? I found out that when I got up in the morning and I realized it's going to be a tough day, that I could work it into my schedule when something went right. But see, most of you get up in the morning and say, man, this is going to be a great day. Nothing's going to go wrong today. No problems in life. And then everything goes wrong. And what happens to you? You're disappointed. Because you're not living life realistically. Tremendous Jones is living life realistically. Life is short and it is difficult. You say, well, Dave, that's kind of a negative approach to life. But you know what? Life is short and it's difficult. But life doesn't end even after 147 years Now, let's look at the end of this chapter. I want you to see a very interesting thing. This is a weird passage. This has all the spookiness of dried up bones. Rattle my bones. That would be a good title. Rattle my bones is a good title for this text here. Look at this. Verse 28. Jacob lived in Egypt another 17 years. By the way, Joseph was taken and sold in Egypt when he was how many years of age? 17. God gave Jacob 17 years with Jacob at the beginning of Joseph's life. At the end of Jacob's life, God loves to do things really neat. He gave him another 17 years with his son. That's more than most of us get to live with our kids, isn't it? God likes to do all things well. So he gave Jacob 17 years. When Jacob thought he would never see his boy again, God gave him another 17 years with his son. It says Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son, Joseph, and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh, which is the way they'd be really sure of a promise, kind of like shaking hands or signing in a dotted line, and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness, that you'll show me loyal love to me as your dad, and that I can absolutely depend upon your word. Now, look what he says next. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, Joseph said. Swear to me, Jacob said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped and leaned on the top of his staff. Now, the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, picks up on that phrase, and Jacob made Joseph promise that he would not bury him in Egypt, and he made him, and it says that when he worshipped, and the translation could be that he worshipped on his staff, probably it's more accurate that he just worshipped by lying back on his bed. He was weak and feeble. He was in his bed, and after he was absolutely sure that Joseph would not leave him in the foreign land of Egypt and would take him home to the promised land, then he could rest quietly. Now, how many of you have ever made this statement, who cares where I die? and do whatever you want to with my body, okay? Now, that's a pretty logical thing because the Lord, you know, it says in Revelation, the Lord's going to gather our bodies, even those that die at sea, and the sharks come and nibble a little bit, and the algae come and nibble a little bit, and, you know, maybe some jellyfish does a little bit. I mean, really a mess. It's really a dilapidated mess when somebody dies at sea and you throw their body overboard. And the book of Revelation says that God will even get someone like that who's become part of all these different fishies' body together again at the resurrection. So that the Bible's not really saying that it's that strategic what happens to the body. But in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, one of the ways that a patriarch expressed his faith is he said, I want to be buried in the Holy Land. In fact, my Jewish friends today, my Jewish friends today, those that are really orthodox, to be buried in the land of Israel, specifically in Jerusalem. In fact, large tracts of Jerusalem are cemeteries because Jewish people from all over the world want to be buried there. You know why? Because Jacob believed that this life was few and it was difficult. But Jacob believed that this life didn't end at all. You see, Jacob believed in a God who gives a promise. And God's promise to Abraham was, you are going to possess the land. You are going to become a great nation, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And you know what? Abraham never possessed that land. So Jacob put two and two together. Abraham didn't possess the land. Isaac didn't possess the land. I didn't possess the land. So, what's going to happen? God made a promise to me that I will possess the land. I never possessed the land in 147 years, which means what? If God makes a promise, you are going to possess the land, and in your whole lifetime you never possess the land, and you check off of planet Earth and die, then if you put two and two together, God promised me I would possess the land. In this life, I never possessed the land. And now I die, you put all that together, what does it equal? God's going to have to resurrect me so I can do what? So I can possess the land. You follow that logic? That's a real important logic. Jacob is confessing, brothers and sisters, the only hope that will enable you to be like Father Jacob. It will enable you to be a realist, but also a man and woman of hope. It's very important to understand this. The only way that you are going to be a realist and not think that Nintendo will please you, think that cars will please you, think that houses will please you, think that all of this stuff and all these experiences will ever please you, if you live like that, you're going to be deluded. You're going to be deceived because I don't care what you do in this life, if I stop you and get you to be honest, deep in your soul, you'll say, I'm really not that happy. There's a a nagging emptiness. It just doesn't do what I want it to do. I just never really feel completely satisfied because that's the way life is. It's few, it's short, and it's difficult. But if you believe that this life isn't all there is, if you believe in the resurrection like Jacob did, then even at 147, you can still be putting your hand on the forehead of little kids and say, there's a blessing and though life is difficult and it's hard it's worth living because death isn't going to end at all and the nagging of our soul is one day going to be satisfied i want you to turn to ezekiel chapter 37 just an incredible chapter another weird chapter it's a, it's the valley of dry bones and i'm sure all of you have heard of this famous chapter chapter 37 of ezekiel it says the hand of the lord was upon me the prophet he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. You got the picture? Picture a valley. You could picture a narrow valley, and it's filled with dry bones. Kind of an eerie Stephen King kind of a picture. He led me back and forth among them. Oh, man, that's great. How would you like that? It sounds like a Halloween haunted house. He has the prophet walk up and down through this valley of dried-out skeletal bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. I mean, these aren't even fresh bones. These are dried out, decaying bones. It says he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? What's your answer to that question? Brothers and sisters, think hard about this. Put yourself in the person, the prophet. You are walking through a valley. There are hundreds upon thousands of dried out bones in this valley. They are not young bones. They are old bones, decaying bones. And God asks you the question, can these bones live? And the answer to that question is humanly, no. If you approach life like that, it's going to kill you. Because the shortness of it and the difficulty of this it's going to destroy you. And the sovereign Lord said, you alone know. He, the prophet says, you sovereign Lord, the almighty sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, you alone know. Then God said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you. And you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh upon you and cover you with skin and I will put breath in you and you will come back to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones began to come together bone to bone and I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath and prophesy son of man. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain. Now he starts to take some of the figures away. He says, breathe into these that were slain, these that have died, that they may what? That they might live. So I prophesied, and and as he commanded me, breath entered into them. They came to life, and they stood up before my feet, and they became a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, now listen, these are the bones of the whole house of Israel. Our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your eyes, open your graves. I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back into the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit into you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And I have done, declares the Lord. These bones are the bones of Israel. You know what Jacob's name that he received from God was? Jacob's name was changed when he wrestled with God. It was changed into, tell me, Israel. Now this text has several layers of things going on. One layer is that the prophet Ezekiel during the Babylonian captivity, when his nation was taken by Nebuchadnezzar into captivity, their bones as a nation dried up. They ceased to exist as a nation. In 722 more than a hundred years previous to 586, the whole northern kingdom that was dominated by Ephraim, Joseph's oldest son's descendants, that whole northern nation disappeared, was taken into captivity by Assyria. And so when Ezekiel is writing these words, his people, the Jewish people of the Old Testament, have ceased to exist as a nation. They are dry bones and Ezekiel has a revelation from God, it's not going to end here. You see, if you were an Israelite living in Babylon, from a human standpoint, as you were in captivity in Babylon, you would say the history of Israel is ended. It's over. But it wasn't. In 70 years' time, God took Zerubbabel back, and then He took Ezra and Nehemiah back, and He rebuilt the people. And by the time of Christ coming into the world, there was again the people of Israel living in the Holy Land. And the Messiah came to those people. But they cut him off in the crucifixion because of our sin. All of us cut him off. And Jesus was dead and he was buried. And the third day he rose again from the dead and the Messiah ascended to heaven. And in 70 A.D., in 70 A.D., the Roman armies just collapsed upon Jerusalem again And thousands upon thousands of Jewish people were killed. The Roman head general Titus lined the streets leading away from Jerusalem with crosses, with burning Jews on those crosses, torturing people just horribly. And the Jewish people were scattered all over the world. And that was in 70 A.D. And from 70 A.D., For one generation after another, all through the Middle Ages, all through the period of the Crusades, all the way up into the modern period, all the way up into the 1900s, the Jewish people had no home, they had no land, they were not a nation. They were dry bones without life as a nation. And if I would have been speaking to you 75 years ago, And if I would have read this passage, and I would have said, you know what this passage is saying? This passage is saying that a nation that is dead, this passage is saying that a group of people that have ceased to exist as a nation, they are going to become a nation again. And they're going to become a nation in the promised land. You would have told me from a human standpoint, you have got to be nuts. Don't you know anything about reality? Don't you know that there's, there's millions of Arabs that are out there that don't want anything to do with a state of Jewish people living in the promised land? You would have argued persuasively and eloquently, and from a human standpoint, you would have been right. But God said, I'm going to breathe again. I'm going to shake those bones. The year before I was born in 1948, and some of you in this audience remember it, The United Nations declared that Israel was a nation again. And the people began to come. And the bones began to gather. And notice this text says they will be without breath. The book of Hosea says they will live many years in their land without a king, without any real rituals spiritually, just waiting. I believe it's very possible that that's the day that we're seeing right now. A nation of Israel, when I have traveled in Israel, one thing you can say about Israel, it's a nation that's basically secular in many, many ways. It's very much like our society in a lot of ways, very democratic, very patriotic, but there's no heart for the Messiah Jesus. In fact, there's a hatred of Him. I've been in Israel when Israeli soldiers came And while my dad was speaking about Jesus the Messiah, the Israeli soldiers spit out, spit between his teeth, and cursed, said, Jesus Christ, and walked away. And that's basically the dominant attitude in Israel today. It's a nation that's gathered without the spirit of the living Christ moving upon them. But this text says that the Holy Spirit's going to blow The Holy Spirit's going to blow in the book, and the book of Romans, chapter 9 through 11, the book of Revelation says there's going to come a new day for the people, the Old Testament people of God, and God's going to breathe new life into them. This chapter 37 goes on and says that no longer will they be a divided house. There's going to be one ruler. He's going to be David the king. And they're going to unite by David their king. And I believe that that's the Messiah, Jesus, who was the son of David who becomes the Messiah, not just of this church family this morning, but the Messiah of the Jewish people. And the bones will not only have flesh, they'll not only become a nation, but the Spirit of God will breathe upon them. And the Old Testament says that that's when there's going to be a resurrection. It says that's when Jesus Christ is going to come back and the graves are going to be opened and the dead are going to receive life again and we're going to enter what's called the millennium for a thousand years and then we move into the great, great time period of eternity. And that's what Jacob believed. Hebrews chapter 11 says these people looked for a land not made with hands that they couldn't see, that they believed that God would give them. And that's why Jacob at 147 could say, you know, life is short and it's difficult. And I'm never satisfied completely on planet Earth. I never get it all together on planet Earth. I never have the totally fulfilling experience. And I want you to learn. You know what? It will really help you. If you say, I'm trying to recapture satisfaction. I'm trying to recapture the the excitement I felt when I was a kid. Stop it. It'll kill you. And you'll ruin everybody around you. You know what will help you? If you'll say, I'm not going to be totally satisfied everything's not going to go well. There's going to be a nagging in my heart, but it's okay. Because I'm in Florida, not in New Jersey. I'm not home yet. You got my point? You're in the wrong place to be completely satisfied. There can be beautiful beaches. There can be unbelievable times in the sun. And life will have some great times, but it's never quite like being home. And that's what all of this life is like for sons of Jacob, for those that believe in Jesus Christ. And those of you that will believe it, will be able to bring a blessing. Because you'll be realistic. You won't have false expectations. Think about it with me. Why are you depressed this morning? Why are you angry this morning? Isn't it because some of you are disappointed? As we talk honestly together, isn't it because that no matter everything you do, you keep trying to do things. You keep trying to really have a good time. But every single thing you do... Sometimes you feel, man, I really got it this time. Man, I'm really, really satisfied. And then, yuck. It hits you. Reality hits you. Oh, man, I'm depressed. That didn't really do it. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, it is. And God comes to you and says, Listen, my child. I never promised you in this life that in the depths of your being that you would be completely at rest ever in this world. That you'd be completely satisfied You know why? Because you're on a journey. You haven't arrived. You're still traveling. You're still traveling. And there's no place like home. There's no place like home. And we're not going to be home until we're home with our Savior in heaven. We've got a few more minutes. You say, well, that's great. It sounds like in the sweet by and by, we're going to live. I want to close with something really, really important. You say, okay, Dave. If I'm not going to be satisfied until we go home, some of you are saying, well, I'm ready to go home right now. In fact, some of you that are really, really depressed, you say, man, let's go right now. We're going to leave church today, and I want to go right to heaven because I'm sick and tired of this life. That's the way I can respond to this kind of teaching and say, Father Jacob, I agree with you. It's few and it's difficult. Let's go home right now. I want you to notice something. In the chapter back in Genesis, turn back to Genesis, in light of this hope of the resurrection, in light of the fact that life is short and it's difficult, Joseph Jacob's son did not say, oh, life is meaningless, doesn't make any sense, let's just wait till we go home to heaven, and let's just gather together and sing. I want you to notice something. Number one, I read to you at the beginning of our message this morning, Joseph called his brothers before him. And Joseph said, brothers, when you go before Pharaoh, I've settled you already in Goshen. Now, Goshen was right next to the promised land. It was separated from the Egyptians. It was the best place for them to be. It was a very wise choice to settle the children of Israel in Goshen. And Joseph has his people for a short period already settled there. And they go before Pharaoh, and Joseph tells them, be careful not to tell them that you're shepherds. Well, they do it anyway. They blow it because they don't follow his instructions. But they do follow his instructions enough to say, we are in Goshen and we've got lots and lots of cattle and it just so happens that Goshen is one of the only places in Egypt where you could have that many cattle and have good pasture land. It's the perfect place for them to be. You know what Joseph is doing? You say, Dave, what does this all have to do with anything? You know what Joseph is doing? You're going to go to work tomorrow. Some of you are going to have to make appeals to bosses. Some of you are going to have to make financial appeals. Some of you are going to have to work on projects and contracts. God is saying to you as sons of Joseph, do it skillfully. Do it wisely. This chapter, the heart of this chapter, if you look at verse 13, it says, there was no food, however, in the whole region of Egypt. The famine was very severe in both Egypt and Canaan, and the whole land was wasted away. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all the Egyptians came and they said, give us some food. Why should we die before our eyes? This is verse 15. Our money's used up. So Joseph said, well, just I'll just give you the food. Just come on out here. We'll just dole the food out to you. Free bread for all. Notice it doesn't say that. Very practical. Joseph said, no, bring your livestock to me. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock. That They do that for a year. The next year, verse 18, when that year was over, they came to him in the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before you? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food so our land doesn't come into bondage. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt. The Egyptians, one and old, sold their fields because of the famine was severe, and the land became Pharaoh, when Joseph reduced all the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh, and they found enough food from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. This is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, "Now that I have bought you and your land today, here is the seed for you, plant it." When the crop comes in, give me one-fifth to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths belong to you as seed for your fields and as food for yourselves and your household and your family. Now, modern commentators will dump all over Joseph for this. They may he reduced the whole land of Egypt to slavery. And Joseph was a cruel dictator. No. Notice what the people say. Verse 25, you have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. And the text is going to tell us that that's the way they administered things in Egypt for many, many years. You say, Dave, what's going on? Well, we don't live underneath an imperial king. It's not the kind of government that we live under. So we've got to be very careful about going from one thing to the next. But there's some principles here. For one thing is Joseph wouldn't give out a free lunch. And that looks mean. You say, man, alive, He, g- he made him give all their money. Then he made him give their livestock. Then he made him them give themselves and their land. But you notice what he did. How much did he really get? Twenty percent. I want to ask you a question. How many of you wouldn't mind living in a government that, with some, some exceptions for those that just can't do anything at all? How many of you wouldn't mind living where they just set one percentage? The taxes you paid was just 20%. That's it. Anybody want to live in Egypt? You know what the agricultural prosperity was in Egypt? 50 to 100 fold. Would you take that? Would you take taxation? You have 50 to 100 fold increase every year and all the government says, is just give me 20%. That's it. and It'll never change. It's consistent all the time. You going to take that? Isn't that interesting? You know what? In the ancient world, a lot of taxation was 40 to 50%. In Babylon at times, it was 50%. Joseph wasn't being mean. You know what he was being? Number one, he was being respectful of people. I want to share something with you. you got to learn this. You know what? It's always easier to just give somebody the money when they need your help. And sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes we just need to open our hearts and just graciously give. But when it comes to the government, when it comes to the government, a government is not a place for gifts. When a government gets in a situation of giving gifts, they end up robbing. And things become very unfair. Governments are about justice and fairness and courts that are responsible for what's right. And when governments think in terms of giving gifts, they destroy the respect of people. And young men... You'll never be a man until it's no free lunch. till it's not a gift. So you go out and use these hands and use this mind and use the body and the gifts that God has given you and you're able to work and you get a legitimate salary for that work and you're able to take that and begin to build a life. And Joseph did not destroy the self-respect of the Egyptians by just doling out a free lunch. Even under severe crisis situation. He was careful that after they'd given him everything, he gave almost all of it back and put a fair taxation rate over ancient Egypt. You say Dave, how do you know those are principles that apply for today? Because 2 Thessalonians the last chapter says this. Paul the apostle said, if you don't work, you don't eat. You want to destroy a man's, a man's self-respect. You want to change a man into someone that will hate your guts? Then just give him his food and don't let him work. And you'll just, you'll make a whole population of children instead of strong people that can rejoice at thanksgiving for the gift of life that God has given to them. You see, what are you saying? I'm saying that as we go along, the, this is the whole point of today's message. Like Jacob, life is short it's difficult, but it's blessed because we're not home yet. And instead of being disillusioned, they're saying, well, we need to withdraw from business, we need to withdraw from government, we need to withdraw from school, we need to withdraw from everything because man alive, it's all going to end anyway. The, Joseph says, no. Joseph said, life is short and it's hard, but you need to be skillful. You need to be wise. Invade the world with skillful living invade every area of life with common biblical sense with insights from the word of god bring a blessing